I'm going to invite Glenn Smith to come up. And um, ironically, he's speaking about the Trinity today. So we thought, let's worship God, Father, Son, and Spirit together as we invite Glenn up. Glenn uh, is a good friend and a colleague also in the city. Uh, he has been serving uh, in our city in Christian ministry for quite a long time. He can tell you how long. I don't want to tell you his age. Um, but he's, still, he's, he's actually, you know, he'll probably outrun you um, when, his, when he's uh, doing better. He's, he's a great runner. He lo- I think you've run up Mount Royal a couple of times too, right, Glenn? It's kind of your thing. So cool. Uh, Glenn serves under the ministry called Christian Direction. They do a multi- multiple things in our city, uh, resource churches, um, witness and, and witness within the city among uh, business people in terms of community groups and Bible studies, um, people that are in the business world and often downtown, uh, involved in so many facets of how the church can be involved. And, uh, and so, Glenn, we're so grateful that you're with us uh, today. And, and Christian Direction is celebrating 50 years this year. So we just want to, we're celebrating that with you too. Anyways, God bless you. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. You're probably wondering why on Palm Sunday we're talking about the Trinity. Um, And maybe some of you are even thinking, why take such a complicated subject and do it on Palm Sunday? Um, You're studying the creed right now, and you can't study the creed without thinking and learning about the Trinity. And I want to try and make the point today that you can't really think about Palm Sunday without thinking about the triune God. And so this morning we're going to plunge into this fascinating subject. And I'm going to try and bring it together with Palm Sunday. Now, I will readily admit... um, In fact, I will affirm what St. Augustine said in the 4th century. He said, anyone who denies the Trinity is in danger of losing one's faith. And anyone who tries to understand the Trinity is in danger of losing one's mind. (laughs) That, That almost figuratively happened to me. When I was doing my graduate studies in early Christian literature... You obviously have to wrestle with how the church affirmed the Trinity. And we're going to look at that. And I had a a wonderful professor. He was, um, Emile Lamirand was his name. He was um, uh, in the process of becoming a Benedictine monk. And then this really, really funny thing happened. Um, He met a woman. And... um, (laughs) So he lost his rights to monkhood, but he stayed a very, very faithful follower of Jesus. And one day he and I were talking about the Trinity and the uniqueness of Jesus. And he took out a little piece of paper. If I'd been quicker this morning, I would have, I would have brought it with me. But this is a little piece of paper where he wrote on it two Greek words. And he said, Glenn, we must always remember that the divine son of Jesus was not of a similar nature to the creator. He was the same nature. And in Greek, believe it or not, you add one letter and you end up either with same or similar. And the early church opted for one less letter 
And therefore, Jesus is of the same nature, not a similar. And that little piece of paper saved my faith. And maybe some of you might disagree with this. Saved my mind. If any of you want to do any further reflection on this subject, I don't think I can recommend a better book to you than this little book um, called Experiencing the Trinity. It was written by Daryl Johnson, who is a professor out in Vancouver. And the book actually exists in French. It's called Rendezvous avec la Trinité. And afterwards, if you want to learn more about this book, come and see me. It's a a little gem. What I'm going to try and do this morning because I I teach the Trinity at our Faculty of Theology and in our course on the introduction to God um, we do 12 hours on the Trinity so I'm going to and I'm responsible for that so we're going to do 12 hours of the Trinity in the next uh, 40-35 minutes okay fasten your seatbelts let's pray and then let us join together in lifting up the name of the Triune God Father, thank you so much for Westside Gathering and for this wonderful time of worship, this wonderful time of singing, this wonderful time of honoring you for who you truly are as the triune God. And we honor you today. So Father, I would ask that you would free your spirit so that we in a small way would be able to grasp what the creed so clearly teaches. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier, And we would pray that this morning we wouldn't just grasp a little bit more of this, but we would learn what it means to be a triune, to have a triune faith and to be rooted in you as the church. We want to be an echo of who you truly are in the world so that when it's all said and done, you as the triune God get all the credit. And we pray this in the matchless name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our purpose this morning is to look at where, from the creed, why it's so important to believe in the Trinity. Now, right away, let's just say, if you take out your concordance this afternoon, or you go to Bible Gateway, and you plug in the word Trinity into the Bible, you're not going to find that word there. In fact, that word doesn't appear until the end of the second century, when Tertullian, the great Latin church father, coined the term. But the starting point to understand about the Trinity is to look to the New Testament witness of the presence and the activity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We are followers of Jesus, therefore Trinitarian in our affirmations and Trinitarian in our beliefs. But there are certain, let me use a Montreal metaphor here. There are certain potholes on the way to trying to get our head around our understanding of the triune God. Now, now these potholes aren't the ones that we face, for, for example, with people that call themselves Unitarians. So they only believe in one God. Uh, We're not talking about confronting Jehovah's Witnesses that confess that Jesus is a half God. Um, We don't don't see here people that say are a part of what's called the United Pentecostal movement that, that deny the Trinity. No, I'm talking about those potholes that 
Orthodox Christians face, face as they try to understand what the Trinity is about. Let me give you three potholes of varying sizes. And these are potholes that the church has faced right from the very beginning. First of all, there's the pothole, the technical term for this is modalism. This is in our zealous desire to affirm monotheism. We are monotheistic like Jews, like Muslims. And in our desire to uphold the unity of God, we then try to find language to explain God. And so we say it this way. Well, there's this God who created the world, and we're going to call that God Father. And then there's another God who is Savior, he's Redeemer, he rose from the dead, and we're going to call him the Son. And then we're going to find a way to explain about how God works in the world today, and that God's called the Spirit. And really what we end up with is modalism. God who manifests himself at different times in history in three different modes. Because we don't want to compromise the unity, our monotheism. And I'd like to show you this morning that modalism, trying to understand God in three different modes of operation, is actually a pothole. You see, what we do then is we try to come up with analogies. We try to find ways to explain it. You've heard these like I've heard them. The Trinity is like water. Um, H2O. That's got steam, it's got liquid, and it's got ice. And the Trinity is like H2O. No, it's not. Um, We try all sorts of analogies. And this morning, I'm going to avoid analogies like the plague. Because don't try to use philosophical categories to express what I said. That the starting point is the New Testament witness of the presence and activity of the triune God. Don't fall into the pothole of modalism. God doesn't exist in three different modes. God is one. Now then there's a, there's a second pothole. Um, and this is actually the reverse. We actually end up being tri theistic. Where when we try to explain God, we end up with three gods rather than one. And, and, and then we get all confused. Like, well, is the Holy Spirit really God? Is, is the Father kind of up there? And, and we get all confused. Don't fall into that pothole. And then the other pothole is what we do to the Holy Spirit. And this has been going on throughout the history of the church. For long periods of time in the church, we ignored the Holy Spirit. And then since the beginning of the 20th century, there have been all sorts of exaggerations on this. And it happens all the time. This, when I was a university student, one of the great exaggerations was the Jesus people. We just figured, let's just talk about Jesus and that'll make life really, really simple. My friends, these are all potholes. And they're slippery potholes whenever we try to find language to explain what the New Testament witness on the presence and activity of God in the world is all about. So, what is the bridge? And as you and I both know, um, there are all sorts of potholes in Montreal that don't need repairs, they need bridges. 
to get through them. And, and so what are, what's the bridge that will get us over these potholes so that we can talk in a meaningful and satisfactory way about the Trinity? But even more than that, to have a Trinitarian spirituality, to know the God of Scripture in His triune manifestation in the world. How do we celebrate that? I think one of my favorite prayers in the church is none other than the prayer of St. Patrick. Listen to how he prayed. As I rise today, May the strength of God pilot me, the power of God uphold me, the wisdom of God guide me, may the eye of God look before me, the ear of God hear me, the word of God speak to me, may the hand of God protect me, the way of God lie before me, the shield of God defend me, the host of God save me. May Christ shield me today, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit, Christ when I stand, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me, amen. And I don't think that you could start in a better prayer than in the prayer of St. Patrick to think about the presence and activity of the triune God in the world. But let's do three things this morning. First of all, let's begin by answering the question, what does the Bible say? And I want to look at one text of Scripture. So if you have your Bible or your telephone with you, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And the first question we want to ask is, what does the Bible say? What does a text of Scripture say about the Trinity? Then after we've looked at that, I want to ask the question, what does the flow of the scriptures, both the Jewish scriptures and the Christian scriptures, say about the Trinity? Then we're going to land it by saying, okay, what does this mean to us today? Kind of, so what? So what does the Bible say? We'll look at one text. What does the flow of scriptures seem to teach? And then let's come to the application. First Peter, I, I've chosen this text, as you'll see, for a very, very intentional reason. Because it really captures what the New Testament says about the presence and activity of the triune God in history. And the text begins in the most simple of ways. Peter, an apostle, a sent one of Jesus Christ, to God's elect Exiles scattered. When, when you read the first letter to Peter, of Peter, right away you're confronted with two terms about his readers. And the first one we have it here, and I'm reading from the, the New International this morning, it uses, and it's, and it's a really good translation here, it, exiles. These are people who were strangers. These were people, we would call them temporary residents. These are people that were living in a foreign land. They were far from their country. Go over to chapter 2 for just a second, in verse 11. And here's what Peter says. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners, same word now, 
and exiles. So he takes their geographical status in chapter 1 and he makes it a metaphor in chapter 2. Because what Peter was trying to say is that these people that I'm writing to, they're pilgrims. They're people without a land. And that's a perfect image for who you are as a follower of Jesus. Now jump down to chapter 1 and verse 17. Since you call on Father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as, okay now here's a different word, as foreigners. And in chapter 2 and verse 11, he takes that word as now a metaphor. And these are the people who are resident aliens. These are people that have got status in another country, but that's not their land. And Peter's writing to these Jews who are exiles and foreigners. People who are temporary resident or resident aliens. And these are people far from their country. And in actual fact, that was a perfect description of Jews at the time of Peter. There were probably about 4 million Jews in diaspora that were living in exile. And any Jew who was living outside of Palestine understood, I'm in exile, we're in exile, because we didn't listen to Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, and 30. We were disobedient. God gave us what we deserved. We're foreigners and we're exiles. And in fact... 80% of Jews at the time of Peter were living in exile. We know that there were about 40,000 in Rome. There were over a million in Egypt. For any of you that have ever visited Cairo, you know to go into old Cairo is to visit synagogues. And Peter writes to these people. Now, notice what he says gives a description of where they are, mostly in Turkey in the rest of chapter uh, 1, verse 1. And now look what he does. And, And follow the text. Follow the conjunctions in the text. These are God's elect, temporary residents, living in Turkey, who have been chosen, now check the first conjunction, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Here is the source of their being. The source was not in their geographical identity. It was not in their ethnic identity. It was not in the sadness of being exiles. What was the truest thing about them is that they had been chosen according. That's the conjunction. Kata. According to the foreknowledge of God. And what Peter was trying to communicate to these people is that the source of your identity is in the electing God. For far too long we've debated, okay, is, are we chosen, not chosen? Are you as an individual chosen? Am I chosen? And we miss the point of 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. The point about God is that God is the electing God. God in God's very person is the source of all. And far too many of us put a full stop in the text right there. 
But Peter doesn't allow us that privilege because now he's going to move to the second conjunction. Through, and now he's going to talk about the means. But this conjunction in Greek also means location. So now he says, you have been chosen by the electing God according to who this God is. He's the source, but it is now through, if you will, in the sphere of activities of the sanctifying spirit. And you can't have the electing God according to Peter, the source, without the means and the location. And so therefore, this God who has chosen a people for himself, the way he does it, the means and the sphere of activity is in what the spirit does. But he hasn't stopped there. Don't put a full stop. Go to the third conjunction in verse 2. Because now we have the outcome. Now we have the goal in mind. To be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled through his blood. And now the outcome. The third conjunction. To be. It is to be like Jesus. Now Paul will deal, will say almost exactly the same thing in the preamble to his epistle in Romans chapter 1. He'll say exactly the same thing, but he'll add an interesting piece because he understood what Christians in Rome were facing and it was the result was so that the nations would understand who this triune God is. So right away, Right in this early Christian piece of literature in the canon, we learn that there is the presence and the activity of the triune God in being the electing God, in the sanctifying spirit, but in the work of Jesus. And they're not separated. It's all in one verse. And so Peter was saying something very significant here about the truth of this God who is beyond this world. We call that the transcendence of God. The creed talks about this. The God who is overall. This is a God who is in one being, one substance, one essence. That was the language that the early church used in the creed and in the confessions. But this God, this one God, this monarchical God... He is very active in three subsistences, if you will. Three modes of being in action. And the way that God is met in the world is not in an impersonal mono, but in three modes of being in action in the world that are deeply personal. Now, you'll notice there that I've tried to avoid using the word persons. This was another great debate in the early church. Can we talk about the three persons of the Trinity? And often we do. It's not totally wrong, but we end up again in tritheism because I'm different as a person than David, than Daria, than you. But that doesn't totally describe God because God is of one essence and I'm not one essence with David or with Daria or with you. And so when we use the word 
person or personhood for the three aspects of the Trinity. It's easy to get into another pothole. You see, here's what the early church did with texts like First um, Peter chapter one, with Second Corinthians chapter thirteen, with Ephesians chapter one and the long prayer. They said there is a God who is above the world. This is the transcendent God, and this God is in God's self. But this God also enters into history. And we know God through what God does in his actions in the world. And so therefore, the God who is above and the God who is below is the same God. And we can only know who God is by what God does in his being. That's why the stories of the Bible are so important. So that we can bring together the God above and the God below. And that's the triune God. So God, in relating to the world, Peter tells us, is not in the unity of his divine being where there's no interaction. Rather, we know this God by what God does in history. And that's why we're Christians, because we go to Jesus and we see how God manifested himself in Jesus and then sent the Spirit to make Jesus known throughout history. That's what makes us Trinitarian. But Peter doesn't develop this, but let me give you a little hint, because we'll get to this in a minute. There's a relationship in the electing God, the sanctifying spirit, and in the redeeming work of Jesus. There's a relationship there. So if that's what the text says, then what does the whole counsel of God's project in human history seem to teach about this relationship in the triune God. You can't do better than to just start off on the first pages of Genesis. Because in the middle of the sixth day of creation, Elohim, the God of creation, what does God say? Let us make the human person in our likeness and in our image. Then God, the us, becomes a singular. Then God created male and female. The plurality of the Godhead created the human person in God's image and likeness. But then the plurality of God created the human person in the plurality of maleness and femaleness. And we get a hint right away, there's something unique about the God of the Bible. We see this throughout the epics of Israel's history. Because at times, for example, Proverbs 8, the wisdom of God creates the world. And we say, wisdom didn't create anything. No, no. Proverbs 8, Akma, female, creates. And then at times, it's the word of God that speaks. We see that constantly in the Psalter. 
But then we're confronted constantly by the the ruha, the breath of God. And right away we see that there are three very vivid personifications of God in the Jewish texts that are active in the world and are distinguishable one from the other. They have personal characteristics. And the Old Testament gives us a hint that God as wisdom, God as word, God as breath or spirit is active in the world. But it all comes to a head in Emmanuel. God with us. And God reveals himself in Jesus. Jesus reveals all things that the Father wants to know. No one knows the Son except those to which the Father choose to reveal. And the Son reveals who God is to those who want to know him. And the New Testament writers encountered the risen Christ and they felt the work of the Holy Spirit in their midst and they were forced to develop language that expounded this concept of God. And all of a sudden, it became very obvious that God is creator. And the New Testament affirms what the Old Testament affirmed. The word that was so clear in the Jewish text becomes the Logos, Jesus. And now the breath takes on a very personal formulation and the wisdom takes on a very personal formulation in the active work of the Holy Spirit of God in the world. And so the early church was forced to come up with language, not impersonal, paternalistic God overall, but a God who can be known in his presence, in activity in the world. And this God of salvation is one in three, and it's brought together in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what the Bible in its whole counsel teaches. Now, you'll often hear people say, and and often with with good reason, you will hear people say, "I, I I can't talk about God as father because why Glenn you never knew my dad you didn't know how he abused me verbally you didn't know how he abused me sexually I could never talk about God as father and I understand those types of of pain and that type of suffering but the fatherhood of God is so dramatically different than human fathers. And when the Old Testament some 20 times talks about the fatherhood of God, it's fundamentally talking about God's faithfulness to his covenant, his faithfulness to his project. Earlier this year, my human father passed away. He was a a wonderful man. Um, Well, I mean, we had our normal bumps along the way as all oldest sons do Um, I have wonderful thoughts about my father uh, over the last three months 
my dad, my dad died in Arizona, and there's a reason why he died in Arizona. He hated Canadian winters. And so 17 years ago, he became a foreigner and an exile in a foreign land. And the sun and the lack of humidity and the lack of snow just pleased him to no end. Um, but, but I remember my dad as somebody who always took me to my hockey games, always took me to my hockey practices as a kid. He couldn't even skate for Pete's sake. But, but, but I, I remember that. But, but then I went through a horrible time in my relationship with my dad. I did something that oldest sons should never do. When he and my mom went through a really tough time in their marriage, I stuck my nose into it, and I should have never done that. And it created a real tear in our relationship. I, I had to apologize profusely. Men my father's age, men of... Uh, uh, men the age of my dad they didn't um, they didn't deal with issues of confession and forgiveness easily and so the best he could do was to say okay I accept your forgiveness I'll forget it let's get on with life uh, life doesn't work that way but anyway it, we, we made it work and um, the, the last 25 years of my dad's life were wonderful when my mom passed away 17 years ago my dad went through a horrible 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 time of loneliness and providentially, I had to do a lot of traveling between Montreal and Los Angeles because I was doing some work for World Vision International. So I would always fly through Arizona and spend some time with him. And, and, and his loneliness met my presence, and we were able to really have good times together. So, so, I, so I understand when there's antipathy about the title, God is Father, but always remember the fatherhood of God is about God's enduring commitment to what he set out to do right from the start. And human fathers can't always deliver the merchandise. But God the creator can. And one reason why I think it's important to infirm God as father is because of the personal dimension of God who sticks to his word. It's got personal to it that isn't necessarily implicit in just calling God creator. And it's, it's Jesus the Son. It's Jesus the Redeemer, that's for sure. Jesus the Reconciler, for sure. But it's not just about who, what He does as Redeemer and Reconciler. It's about who He is as the Divine Son. And, and it's the, the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you will, will, will remember this. I grew up in the era in the church of the King James Bible. Uh, you know, who was the Holy Spirit in the King James Bible? It was the Holy Ghost, I mean, who wanted to deal with the Holy Ghost? Well, thank goodness we got better translations now. And, and, and I understand the Holy Spirit as the sanctifying spirit. But sanctification is what he does. It's not necessarily all that he is. And so when we affirm God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're capturing the presence and the activity and the personalness of who God is. We don't meet God as some outside, transcendent, unknown God. No, we meet God in a triune fashion in what he does in the world. And as I said, we know who God is because of how he works in the world. So what does the Bible say? Peter gives us a glimpse According to the foreknowledge of God, by and in the location, the sphere of the sanctifying spirit. For what reason? To be obedient. And Paul would add, for the nations to be obedient. 
to Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. What does the Bible say from the front page right to the back page? This is a personal God with personal characteristics who manifests himself in his presence and work in the world. And this God is knowable. And he's knowable in a personal way. Okay. So what does it mean? I I just wrote in my notes here three things and then I that I want to finish in a very unique way. I think the first thing the Trinity means for us personally is that as the church, we are a reflection, an expression of the relational God. As God gets along within the Trinity, the church is to be the reflection of that in its relationships. Which means, my friends, when the church doesn't get along, it's not being a reflection of who God is. The metaphor I like to use is this. The triune God, one in three. And in their relationships, there is interplay together. There's a technical term here. We don't need to worry about that. But there is an interplay. They get along. And the church is the bride of Christ. And we make no distinction between the nature and the mission of the church being in God. We are the bride of Christ. And so therefore, the church is the, here's the metaphor, the echo of God in the world. And so therefore, Westside Gathering is the echo, the entity that echoes the triune God on the West Island. And when we don't get along, we're a crummy echo. We're a bad echo. Because God is fundamentally relational. Because it's three in one. So, the first application is, how are you getting along with your sisters and brothers? It's a reflection of how you believe and practice the Trinity. Which then leads to the second one. We meet the triune God in Jesus by the Holy Spirit. So, we don't just get to know God in some informal, bookish, um, theological manner. No, we get to know God through Jesus. And who was Jesus? Emmanuel, God with us. And so therefore, the incarnation is the model of how God wants to be known. And so therefore, as an echo, we incarnate God in our world. There's direct links. So therefore, okay, here's the link to today. When Jesus chooses a donkey to go into the city, don't let the profundity of that humble action go by you. He didn't come in on a horse. He didn't come in on an elephant. He didn't come in with a gun. He came in in the most humble of fashions. And Palm Sunday is a reflection of the Trinity. God opts for humility. God opts for servanthood. God doesn't opt for triumphalism. 
So therefore, how we act as humble servants in the world is a reflection of who God is. And so therefore, my third thing then is that we can know this God in a triune way. And this is where Paul is so helpful at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I invite you to read it this afternoon. The end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4. We reflect as in a mirror the Spirit. The text is full of the Trinity. And so therefore, we say no to falsifying. We say no to exaggeration. We say no to bad ways of operating, Paul says. Because we want to reflect Knowing God in the world. And the world meets the Trinity then through the church. Now, if you want to get scared, just think about that. The world meets the triune God through the church. Unfortunately, God doesn't have a plan B. Some days I wish he did. But God chooses you and me by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Him and invite other people to obedience. And it's in the Trinity. And that's the God we know. That's the God we meet. That's the God who is beyond this world, but the God who manifests Himself in Jesus and by the Spirit for you and me. A couple of years ago when I was here with you on Good Friday... And we did the first part of Paul's poem in Philippians. I introduced you to a piece of music by Bach that was inspired by Philippians chapter 2. This morning I want to conclude with another cantata by Bach, a very short part of it, which is what Bach wrote about the Trinity. I invite you to listen as I... Laud, praise, and honor. Be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. May he, the triune God, increase in us. What he has graciously promised us. Trust completely in Him, the triune God. 
absolute reliance. Building sincerely. Upon his foundation. Clinging to him in heart and in mind. To this we now sing, Amen. All will be given to us if we believe in Him, the Triune God, from the bottom of our heart. And now Bach will make a transition and he will introduce the Alleluia. And so I don't think we could do better than to conclude this morning in one voice saying Alleluia to the triune God who came in Jesus as a humble servant. Father, thank you this morning that you invite us to know you Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are our foundation. We can know you in heart and mind. But now as we go out into our communities, we go out as a reflection of you, the personal, relational God, and we want to be an echo of you this afternoon. So when it's all said and done, you get all the credit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.